I love that song. I love um, that it really points out that we are made to desire a relationship with God in our hearts and our souls hunger for it. Before we get there, because I almost forgot, but I see my kids running out. If you are going to Treehouse um, and you are uh, a child, if you're an adult, you can't leave. Um, follow Miss Sarah and whoever else is back there out this time. And if you have one of those blue cards that'll help us with our safety, it'd be great. Hopefully that wasn't someone coming down the stairs. All right, we're good. I got an okay sign. <laughs> anyways, well, thank you, ladies. Um, that song so clearly de- demonstrates how much our hearts and our souls long for Jesus. Excuse me. <coughs> Pray for me while I try to get rid of this cough. Let's pray real quick before we open up God's Word. Father, you are so good. We are so thankful to be in this place today. Thankful to be around people who are seeking after you, Father. And God, I pray that through your Word today, you speak to our hearts. Wherever we may find ourselves, Father, I pray that you make it clearly um, clear to our hearts, God, that, that we are either with you or we are against you. And Father, may today be the day that we step out in faith and say we believe who you are and we are on, um, on your team, God. Father, I pray for this service. I pray that you speak. Um, hide me behind yourself. pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, as many of you guys know, um, I went to the University of Texas. Hook them. So. I know, I know there's some people in the audience who feel like I just made a really offensive statement, um, and I apologize. Um, anyways, I did study religious studies at the University of Texas, which is even a whole other story. Um, but you can imagine uh, just the breadth of information and things that I got to be around at UT in Austin, Texas, studying religion. There were philosophies and thought processes that were crazy. Um, and there were a few statements I heard that, that really kind of made me think and really question, do people really know what they're talking about when they're talking about God or Jesus? I heard statements like, you know, Jesus never really said who he really was. That the rest of the Bible, these other writers just kind of added to Scripture and kind of created this gospel that says Jesus is the Son of God. I've heard that statement. I've also heard people who said that, well, if Christianity is just about getting to heaven— How come it's just not one page and it says step one, two, and three? Why is it just not that simple? Well, in reality, that shows a great lack of understanding of who God is. Because in reality, Christianity is not about just getting a ticket to heaven, but it's about being redeemed and having a restored relationship with God the Creator. And I want to hopefully show to you guys today that Jesus not only said who He was, He very clearly demonstrated through his actions and his actual words, his message and his motives. Now, um, you guys may have realized that yesterday we celebrated something as America and both as, I guess, mankind. We celebrated the Apollo landing on the moon. It was the 50th anniversary of this extraordinary event where we, for the first time, had a man walking on an extraterrestrial body. And it's just crazy to think about. Um, now, at my house last night, we, Megan, Megan's our idea person. She puts these little family events together. And so we were going to celebrate the moon landing last night. And I, I got information during the day that on YouTube, you could actually watch like the live like air of the CBS airing of the moon landing, like as it went on. So 
we kept kind of tuning in and watching, and, you know, you'd see, like, the little black and white fig- figure bounce across the screen. And um, we were, like, Megan and I were like, oh, it's so cool, so cool to watch. Now, much to uh, many of the students' dismay, I was not alive during that time. So a lot of what I saw this week and yesterday, I, I was seeing for the first time. Um, the, the students think I'm, like, over 50, and I will tell you today that, like, the moon landing happened 17 years before I was born, okay? So... I did not get to experience that, like, that whole like, nationwide um, exuberance of like, watching it on TV and being this really cool moment. Um, but so with our family last night, Megan actually bought like, us NASA t-shirts, um, which I don't know was worth the money or not. Um, she made uh, what was called Rocket Dogs, which is a hot dog with cheese on one end. And, um, and then she bought Moon Pies. And I don't really like Moon Pies, so I took like two bites and said I'm done. Um, so, but it was fun. <coughs> now, but much to Megan's dismay, <coughs> our kids couldn't care at all about watching this up with us. She went into all this effort, and I, she was like, why don't they want to watch it? I was like, well, Megan, they're watching some blurry black and white pictures on the screen, which is like so far removed from what they get to see every single day now. So it's not interesting to them. They, uh, the idea and like the technology that went into the Apollo landing was like amazing to us. But to our kids, they like, they're like, so what? We're going to Mars tomorrow, you know, or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's not no kind of big deal to them. But in reality, I mean, this, this moment in history um, actually goes down as one of like the, the biggest steps for, for mankind. Like they talk about in, in a 500-year span, what could be one turning point in like humankind that's going to be remembered? What's well, putting man on the moon for the first time? And it was this big celebrated deal. And we look back 50 years like, man, how awesome. Go America. We did it first. But did you guys know, and if you were alive during the time, you probably did know because it was in the newspapers, that the majority of Americans were opposed to the space program because, mostly because of the cost. The idea was there were many more problems going on here on earth that were worth the money than sending a man to the moon. There were things like the Cold War was going on. So we were worried about the Soviet Union. There was, you know, this disease that was becoming rampant called cancer. We could be putting that money towards curing cancer. And there was just overall national security issues that were at stake that most Americans said, you know what, it's not important for us to go to space when we have all these issues here. Now, I was, as I was kind of preparing for this week, I was reading about the, the, the landing, because I just, I just think it's interesting. There's a lot of background information that went into getting us actually to the moon that a lot of people don't realize. Um, so I was reading this article in the Smithsonian, and here's what it said. It was talking about um, that kind of the announcement of John F. Kennedy leading up to uh, us getting excited about the space program. And it says, when President John F. Kennedy declared in 1961 that the United States would go to the moon, he was committing the nation to do something we simply could not do. We didn't have the tools or equipment, the rockets or the launch pads, the spacesuits or the computers or the microgravity food. And it isn't just that we didn't have what we would need, we didn't even know what we would need. We didn't have a list. No one in the world had a list. Indeed, our unpreparedness for the task goes a level deeper. We didn't even know how to fly to the moon. We didn't know what course to fly to even get there, to get, to get there from here. So President Kennedy comes up and makes this big statement. We're going to the moon without any understanding 
of the work that would have to get take place to get us there. Now, I guess it's it's a thing that there's like these. Rec- you know, I guess you should just know, if you go to the White House, you're being recorded, okay? So we have these tapes that have been released since this time of, like, secret recordings of high-level meetings and stuff in the White House. Um, and while on camera, President Kennedy was tooting the space program, raising money, and it seemed like he was really for the program, in these recordings, we actually find out that it seems like President Kennedy probably had a little more doubt in his mind than he let on. So... In that same article, it says just 10 weeks after his announcement that we were going to the moon, 10 weeks, we're going to the moon 10 weeks later, how come we're not there yet? Okay, this is where President Kennedy's mind is. He's meeting with a guy named Jason, James Webb, who's a NASA administrator in the White House, and they have this conversation, and the article says it like this. James Webb, a NASA administrator, had been telling Kennedy that a moon landing was possible in late 1967, but was more likely in 1968. Remember, this is 10 weeks after 1961, okay? Kennedy wanted it sooner. How do you move it back to 1967? Would the $400 million they were there to discuss do that? How about early 1967? What would that take? Kennedy seemed puzzled that more money wouldn't necessarily make it happen sooner. There's a long exchange in which Kennedy tries to understand why getting $400 million extra right now would help the Gemini program, but would likely not move Apollo any sooner. He didn't understand the details of staged technology development, that you have to build and fly Gemini in part to help you make the right decisions about Apollo. Four months here or there over four years is hard to nail down. So there's this discussion going on where Kennedy is like, I'm giving you all this money. How come we're not there yet? And the NASA's guy like, we don't know how to do that stuff yet, right? And he's like, if we had more money, we can keep working on it, but it's going to be several years. And President Kennedy just didn't understand this. And eventually in this recording, it actually becomes clear of Kennedy's real motives behind why he was so big on the space program. He wasn't interested in space. He was more interested in beating the Russians than he was into space. He quote said, we shouldn't be spending this kind of money because I'm not that interested in space. It becomes clear in this moment that Mr. Webb and President Kennedy are on two very different planes. Mr. Webb, this NASA administrator, was interested in space and how the technology and exploration could benefit mankind. Kennedy was only interested in not being second to the Soviet Union. So in reality, he talked this big game, but his motives were political. And so we're going to be picking up in, this, in John chapter 8, where, right where Brother Jeff left us off last week. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 8 and flip to verse 21. But this picks up on the hills of where Jesus had just proclaimed to the religious leaders in, in the temple that he is the light of the world. Jesus, with his own words, basically says, it is he who will reveal truth, he who will reveal sin, and yes, that even he is equal with God, because only God can be truth. Now, these religious leaders, right, they, 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 they were supposed to be experts in the law, studied. They were threatened by a man who might upset their balance of political power. 
their motives were political. Especially if this man they're talking to, Jesus, if there's a chance this guy knows more about God than they did, they were very threatened. They had power because they could read and write. They were learned and they had studied these. They were supposed to be the ones that knew what God desired. Yet there's this man, Jesus, who we see through other bits of Scripture and history that had this deep understanding of the Scriptures without ever having to be studied. Even at a young age, when he was 12 in the temple, teaching the adults, they couldn't believe how much he knew. So these religious leaders were threatened. Now last week in the, very, in the first service, Brother Jeff mentioned a question that the religious leaders posed to Jesus in verse 19. So if you just come back to verse 19 real quick, he basically asked, or the religious leaders asked Jesus, who is your father? Is that what he says? Where is your father? Right word. He asked, where is your father? Now, in, in our translation in English, it seems like, okay, well, he's asked, they're asking where his father is. But in reality, it's a much more insidious question than that. These religious leaders are basically saying, hey, Jesus, so where is your father? Because we know you're not Joseph's son. If you're not Joseph's son, where is your biological father? We know the mess up that your mom did. That's what they're throwing at him. And Jesus responds to these leaders and tells them, you know what? You're right. You don't know my father. And he says, because if you knew me, you would know my father. And he makes this, um, this comparison that we're going to see expounded on in the next section, where he's comparing, comparing the physical world with the spiritual world. These religious, these religious leaders were looking for Jesus' biological father so they could say, we know where you come from. But Jesus says, you have no idea. You think you know, but you don't. Just like the difference between President Kennedy and James Webb, these leaders and Jesus are on two very different planes. Jesus, being on a plane, they simply just did not understand. They thought, where is Jesus' earthly father when Jesus, his father, is not earthly? So let's read, starting in verse 21. He says to them again, I am going away. And you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, if you just read that, that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Jesus is like, hey, you're going to look for me, but you're not going to be able to find me. And guess what? You're going to die. Wow, okay. <laughs> the thing is, Jesus already knew where he was going. He knew his destiny was heaven. He knew his destiny was something greater than this earthly plane. And he also knew that in the current state, these men were going to hell because they opposed him. They had a hatred for Jesus. And if you have a hatred for Jesus, you can't follow him to heaven. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. <coughs> They essentially are trying to point out to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you know what? We know we're going to heaven because we've, we've read Scripture and we've got it all figured out. God likes us more than everyone else. We're, we're great. We live good lives. We're going to heaven. And because you're not like us, you're obviously not. 
So this is really another insult thrown at Jesus because not only are they trying to tell Jesus that he's probably going to hell, in Jewish thought at this time, it was thought that the deepest, worst part of hell was, was uh, saved for those who kill themselves. That's what they thought. And even in this moment, Jesus challenges this thought because Jesus knows that life and death are only dependent upon him. It does not matter how you die because that cannot decide your eternity. It is simply true believing faith in Jesus that dictates whether you are in heaven or hell. So he says to them, You are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. So Jesus starts to point out that the sin that is in their words, the sin that is in the way they live their life, that it doesn't match up with the true spiritual plane of who God is that doesn't match up with the desire of who God is, which these guys are supposed to know, right? They've been reading Scripture and studying and learning God's Word. But that's not their motive. These men are from the natural world and can think only natural, where Jesus is from the spiritual world. So Jesus kind of returns their insult to let them know that he's, he basically says, you're right, we, do, we are on two different levels. We're going to different places just not the place that, that these leaders think they're going to. Even though these were religious leaders. Reli- I mean, these, these people were the ones that were supposed to, you know, be about religion, know, know the things of God. Yet they lived in darkness, and they filled their mind and their deeds with that darkness. <clears throat> and the darkness remained in them because they rejected the light. Jesus said, I am the light, and these religious leaders are rejecting Jesus. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, if you helped with VBS or if you've ever been to a VBS before, you've heard this simple statement that we learn from Scripture. People are born in sin. At our VBS here, we actually kind of focused on, and every single day we, we went over this one thing that humanity shares one trait— Sin. We all inherit this sin nature. The thing is, though, if we, <coughs> if we hold on to our sin and don't deal with it, we die in our sin. But since sin must be dealt with, those who die in their sins will have to pay for their sins in hell. But the problem is, if we are people of sin and the only way to deal with sin is through death and putting death to sin, the only way to deal with sin is to put death to us. That's the only answer. But that doesn't work, does it? We can't get to heaven by killing ourselves. (laughs) We have to deal with our sins on this side of death by one way, trusting in whom Jesus is And what he did to save us. Now, let's go back to verse 21 real quick. In this statement, Jesus says, I am going away and you'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Singular. And then go down to verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. In the singular word of sin expresses the root sin of unbelief. 
right? That, that's where basically all our sin comes from is that we just simply don't believe in who Jesus is. That is our root sin. And then verse 24 expresses this plurality of sins, which basically means the, the particular attitudes, words, and actions which make up the fruit of our unbelief. Sin always leads to more sins. Two wrongs don't make a right. The only way to stop this spiral of sin and the thereafter fruit of the sin is to put sin to death. And I love, I love the statement because Jesus even gives these guys a chance. In verse 24, he says, you're going to die in your sin unless. <coughs> and he says, unless you believe that I am he. Jesus just said exactly what we need to know to have life. If you want to deal with the sin problem, you have to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. There's no possible way for us to deal with sin ourselves. You can't, you can't show up to church one day, say, you know what, yep, I believe in Jesus, go live the rest of your life and you're done. Because that doesn't illustrate that you really have a believing faith in Jesus. You can't live a life that outweighs the bad. Where you're like, you know, I'm going to try to live as a good person and it's going to be better than who I was before. That's not going to get you to heaven. You cannot defeat or kill your sin. Only through trusting Jesus every day in obedience is putting your sin to death. So in verse 25, these religious leaders... <coughs> Sorry. They return to him and they say, Who are you? And I can I can almost see like like their nose like twitch up and they're like, you know, like almost like, who do you think you are? They're sitting there thinking and they're thinking like, we've studied scripture. Every single day. We know what God wants. We know who God likes, and it's us. Because we are important. Jesus, if you know who God is, who, what authority do you have to tell us that we are people of sin? Have you guys ever been in a situation like that where someone's just challenged you? And it said, like, you know, they're looked down on you like, who do you think you are that you can do that or you can say that? It's this real, like, demeaning moment. And Jesus responds, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. See, once again, Jesus has told them over and over again who he was. But they continue to try to trip him up because they, they were so trying to protect their place of power that they wanted to try to get Jesus to say something to condemn him so that they could kill him and not to worry about it. And they'd be like, you know, we killed another blasphemer. And we'll sit back on our throne of, of religion. Deep inside, though, they knew their own selfishness. They knew why they wanted Jesus gone. Then Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me here is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Essentially, Jesus basically says, hey, I could call you out in your sins right now. We could sit here and list your sins to your face, every single one that you know. He's, but you know what? The Pharisees already knew what they, their problem is. 
And they were scared because if this man, Jesus, was claiming to be speaking the words of God and then they were opposing Jesus and people saw them opposing Jesus who spoke the words of God, then all of a sudden that means they're opposing God. Well, we can't let people think that we might be opposing God because then they're not going to think we're all that mighty. So they were stuck because of their selfishness. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They have completely missed the spiritual nature of this conversation with Jesus. And I love that John adds this because the reason John adds this into this story is so that we as readers today can really understand the breadth of the situation. It's that these religious leaders did not understand the spiritual. They were concerned about their own power in the physical world. And, and, And you really sort of can't blame them because... If that's all they know is the natural world and they, are, they, they don't know the Father, there's no way for them to understand the spiritual. But Jesus says to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus now kind of gives them almost like a little future statement. This lifting up isn't as much as Jesus being celebrated and praised, where Jesus is saying, hey, one day you're going to be praising me. But he says, you know what, one day you're going to see me lifted up on a cross from the ground and then eventually resurrected, which was marked by an empty grave. But he tells them that when he dies and pays the penalty for sin, these leaders are going to see that through everything Jesus suffered, through the crucifixion and everything leading up to it, Jesus did it willingly. You know what? People ask, you know, who killed Jesus? It wasn't man. Jesus gave himself to die. He could have at any moment said, you know what? I'm done. This isn't worth it. I'm stopping. But he did it. And these leaders, through these words, I'm sure they're watching Jesus be be crucified, and they think back, when he is lifted up, you'll know that I am he. They get to witness perfect obedience of the Son to the Father. Because they know in their hearts, you know what, we couldn't have killed that man. And they see that, as Jesus said, he does nothing of himself. There was no selfishness in Jesus' actions on the cross. If anything, it was the exact opposite. It was so selfless that he just took everything that we deserve and took it on himself. Can you see the obedience of Jesus here? Look back through 28 through 30. He says, I do nothing of myself, my own authority. That's obedience to the Father. He says, "I, I speak just as the Father taught me. It's obedience to the Father. And then he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's obedience, obedience to the Father. So you see the, these leaders in Jesus were on two very different planes. Now, since Jesus was not of this world, as he stated, he is the only one who could live a perfect life in submission and obedience to God. 
Therefore, the only one that could even take on the payment for our sins because he was perfect. He was the only one that could sacrifice himself perfectly because he was not born of a man. He was born of the Father. But unfortunately, it's not just good enough for us to just know this information. We can't just say, yep, oh, I know, I've heard the story. Jesus lived, he was crucified, he resurrected, and he lives in heaven. And I just got to say, yep, I know he did that, and that's good enough. It's not enough. That, that's the beginning. Now, we do see in this passage that it says, um, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there were other people around, perhaps even some of these religious leaders who were speaking to him, begin to understand the unless. But belief in Jesus is really about a total life commitment to following Jesus. And, and, and where do we follow Jesus? I mean, it's not like Jesus, like when you get saved, he is all of a sudden like, you know, I can see Jesus standing beside me and you can't because you're not saved kind of thing. And I like just follow Jesus around in circles and I'm like, come do the things he's going to do. It doesn't work that way, right? But what, how, where do we follow Jesus? In obedience to God the Father. We take the characteristics of Jesus and the way he lived his life and we live them out and allow us to take our selfishness away and just live as Jesus and people will see us and know the gospel. And then we get to share with them, hey, let me tell you how, what this all means. There was this guy named Jesus who died to pay the penalty of my sins on a cross. The story of the gospel becomes so much more when your life is being lived out of what Jesus wants in obedience to God. You know, and I always like to look and say, you know, where am I in this story? Am I, am I in the shoes of these Pharisees? These guys who, who knew a lot of facts, who probably could quote much of the scripture they had at the time, but yet we're still living in this idea, this, this, this state of sin and darkness and really unbelief of who God really was. There was a movie that came out several years ago. I think it's called The Truman Show. It's Truman something. But in this movie, um, this guy named, I don't even know if his first name is Truman. Maybe last name. I don't know. It's been a long time. Um, but he's living his life, and his life is kind of normal, humdrum, does his thing. But then he starts to realize kind of things happening. Like all of a sudden he sees like a door way up in the sky, and he's like, oh, that's weird. I think I saw something. But he kind of dismisses it. And then he sees like like a light fall down and he doesn't really understand what's going on and eventually the movie goes through and in reality this guy is living inside of a tv show and he's like a reality tv show and the whole world is watching this guy's life and I, I think about that that picture and I start to wonder if someone was watching every moment of my life would they know who Jesus is or would they just say, yo, that guy is religious and he goes to church on Sunday. Maybe even Sundays and Wednesdays. He goes and he reads the Bible. But would his life demonstrate and his motives demonstrate the message of Jesus? And some of you here may actually even find yourself sitting where you, you maybe never considered the, the seriousness of what sin is. Because sin is death. Scripture says the wages of sin is the penalty, the payment of sin is death. Sin equals death. In your sin, you are dead. But in Jesus, there is life. 
And as we see in the story of President Kennedy and, and James Webb, it's really easy to talk a big game, especially when people are listening and, you know, you're out front. But your motives of your faith will really truly dictate what's in your heart. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, are we living in obedience to the Father or are we concerned with the physical? Which plane do you find yourself in? And I'm going to pray and just ask that as we, as we think about that challenge to really search our hearts for how we're living our life, if we truly do believe and have a total life commitment to Jesus, Andy's going to come up here and, and play a song of invitation. And I just want to invite you, if, if you've never made that, state, that, that profession, to say, you know what, I want to get things right with Jesus now. I want to have that restored relationship with the Father. Let today be the day. Or maybe you just have questions you want to seek. I know Brother Jeff and I would love to speak with you and talk you through what this means. Because there is nothing greater than a life lived of life and not death. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Your grace and your mercy for us is unfathomable. The fact that you will take us who are dead in our sin and yet want to give us life and give us relationship with you. Father, I pray as we examine our hearts, God, that, that we really start to, to take notice of what our life illustrates. Does it illustrate something that shows we live in obedience to you, Father, or does it illustrate that we're just full of religion and information and facts? Guys, pray for anyone in this room right now that may be struggling with that, that they, they, um, they get that figured out today, maybe through prayer or through discussion. Let's not leave this place knowing, um, not knowing who you are. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.